0: Hello and welcome, everyone. Uh, Joining us today for an ESG panel with uh, three illustrious uh, presenters. Uh, We've got Brandon Monroe, CEO, MD of Bannerman Energy. We've got Tim Carstens, uh, he's Managing Director of Base Resources at Madagascar and Kenya, and also joined by Merlin Marr-Johnson, who's Executive Vice President and Corporate Secretary at Salazar Resources. Hello, gentlemen.
1: Hello. I'm Merlin Mar-Johnson. I'm the Executive Vice President of Salazar Resources, which is a TSX-listed exploration and development company focused on projects in Ecuador. Salazar was founded in 2007 and has been developing the El Domo mine at Curupamba in a community of about 14,000 people. Um, so we've got uh, we, we've we've brought the community along there. So we've got a huge amount of um, ESG experience there, and in fact, we've created something called the Salazar Foundation, which is the first and only um, foundation which has been a, got approval from the the Ministry of non-renewable, um, uh, energy, sorry, Non Renewable Energy, sort non non renewable minerals in in Ecuador.
2: I'm Brandon Munro. I'm the CEO of. ASX-listed, Bannerman Energy Limited. We have the Itango Uranium Project in Namibia. We've been working on it since 2006 and being in a sensitive sector such as uranium in an excellent African operating jurisdiction such as Namibia, we have managed to learn a thing or two about ESG over that 15-year life.
3: Um, Tim Carstens, the Managing Director of Base Resources. Uh, We're listed in Australia and, and London. Uh, We're the operators of the Kuala operations in Kenya that we uh, developed and commissioned in 2013. Uh, It's about 70% of the Kenyan mining industry, so we were trailblazing to a fairly significant extent and we're now looking to uh, do the same thing or replicate it in um, Madagascar with the Toliara project that we've pushed through the study phases and we're uh, we're now looking to uh, lock down fiscal terms and head towards development.
0: Good, good to have you. I'm um, here today. We are going to talk about this thing ESG. Um, there seems to be some sort of mixed understanding about the importance of it. I think the big funds are demanding uh, that uh, companies have a robust ESG policy in place. I think uh, some retail investors aren't sure why companies should be spending money on something like that. So, Brandon, I'm going to start with you today. Can you can you describe um, how? ESG has come to the forefront in terms of the conversations being had at a corporate level and also um you know with with big institutions and funds out there. I mean why is it why is it so um important? Well maybe I'll come in here,
2: Matt. Um ESG, of course, environmental social governance, something in the mining sector that we've spent a lot of time working on, you know, at least for the last couple of decades, depending on. Uh, how forward-looking the mining company was. It had different names back then, corporate social investment, corporate social responsibility, and it's now morphed into a broader concept that goes well beyond the mining sector itself. Very, very important at the moment because it um, is a governor and a filter for a very significant proportion of the money flows coming from Western capital markets. And from a, even for smaller companies who might not feature on institutional uh, target lists, it's still important because the decisions that a company makes while it's growing up and as it's moving through its mining adolescence uh, will certainly bring to bear the attitudes that investors that are ESG focused or green finance focused will have once that company becomes more institutional grade. And so, like in our case, uh, for the company I work for, we've been very committed over 15 years, and it's a tremendous advantage to now talk about ESG as if it's this new thing that we've been investing in for a long time, and that gives us a lot of authenticity. So for for a retail investor who might think it doesn't, uh, it doesn 't matter to this small, tiny little exploration company. I would say that it absolutely does because if that company has success, it is going to need to live with the ESG decisions that it makes
0: along its entire life cycle so i mean Tim so you 're operating in, in Madagascar and um, Kenya uh, they are the host countries you 're their guest um, you need their support but there 's no handbook given to you when you start a, a, a company there 's no so, ESG protocol written down for you. So how do you go about working out what you need to do?
3: The the interesting thing, and I'm sort of building a bit on what Brandon just said about working on this sort of thing for the last 15 years. Um, For for successful companies, I think if you actually tracked back for any company that's done a successful mineral development in in Africa, you would see that they um, have been practising what I would describe as enlightened self-interest, um, from the very beginning, where where there's a clear understanding that unless the community is getting what it needs from you, you're not going to get what you need from them, um, unless you are stewarding the environment in the way you should be. Um, and in a positive sense, you're you're not going to have NGO support. Indeed, you're going to have opposition. You're going to have blowback from government eventually. You're going to have community being dissatisfied, dissatisfied, and being concerned about the legacy you're going to leave them. You know, unless you're practicing the sort of ethics um, that you, you really need to. You know, for example, I mean, in my view, is that if you open the door to any um, sort of bribery and corruption of any level within your business, um, you've then become those guys and that door is impossible to close. So you know, when we started BASE, we started with a very clear understanding of the need to be um, extremely good at that. That, I, In fact, at the outset of BASE, I banned the concept or the, the language corporate social responsibility because to me that's a language of obligation. It's what you do to be seen to be corporately, socially responsible. Um, not focused on on impacts and outcomes, which is where you really need to be. Um, so for us, it's been interesting. You know, we we've we've not really talked as much as we probably should have about how we go about um, these ESG matters, um, and we've sort of relied on just people seeing it. and And what's changed for us now is the need to actively talk about what you do. and And for us, we haven't felt that as being a big wrench culturally because it kind of just talking about what we've always done. Um, So it's been reasonably straightforward for us to start talking more about that. Um, But it's interesting. I'm using the language about talking about what you do because one of the risks I see at the moment is while we're seeing a lot of fund managers focused on it, we've got any number of indexes and frameworks that are multiplying as as quickly as you like, Um, there seems to be an increasing dissatisfaction with the way people are reporting this because it's it's falling into that formulaic um, reporting rather than it actually driving outcomes on the ground. And and you, you know when I talk to fund managers now, they you know they want to talk about how we're going about ESG. Um, and the more enlightened ones are less interested in where we sit on an index or any of that sort of stuff. You know, They want to understand what the what is your understanding of the impacts you have and what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve. Um, and just one last point I'd make is that to a certain extent, I think something that's going to drive change faster, certainly uh, for mining companies in industrial minerals, is that the pressure that the funds are putting on the big downstream customers to um, drive change in scope two and you know, the emissions that, that are further up their, their chains. Um, what we're seeing now is that the, these big industrial companies have done a lot of work around themselves and are now starting to focus on back upstream to customers. And what I think we're going to see based on our experience is a bit of a almost a market segmentation where there are relatively few companies in the mineral sand space, for example, um, that are able to contest certain parts of the market because you you have to be at a certain level and recognised as such um, to be able to access the markets. And that's going to drive behaviour really quickly.
0: Well, Merlin, I've got a couple th- thanks for that, Tim. essentially interesting. A couple of things I want to come back to there. But yeah, first of all, get no. Merlin in the conversation. Merlin, you're a much earlier stage than um, the, the two others, uh, expiration stage uh, in Ecuador. Um, it would be fair for retail investors to say, well, don't bother spending any money at this point. You need to be you know, drilling holes and um, you know, creating value that way, wouldn't
1: it? Um, no. No, no, afraid not. I completely agree with um, everything that Tim said. And, I mean, you know, Brandon started by saying that there's this weight of money and you've got to get yourself organized so that you're ready for the kind of um, institutional-grade investment. Um, But like Tim said, it's something that we absolutely do from the bottom up. It's um, R-E-S-G, for want of a better word, it's it's ingrained in our DNA, it's ingrained in our culture. I was... um, Freddie Salazar, the CEO and the founder of the company, and he's been working in Ecuador for thirty years. And the company was founded in two thousand and seven. And from day one, the very first thing that we do is before you go into any project, you start with a dialogue, you start with the local community. I mean, we're going into um, deprived areas mostly, uh, exploration in places where there's not much economic activity, and there's a great deal of ignorance and there's um, distrust of the mining sector because 75% of the gold in Ecuador is mined illegally with um, very poor regulatory standards and there's um, bonded labor and all, of, all those, everything wrong you can think about in the, in the uh, mining sector happens in Ecuador. So when you come as an exploration company, to want to do modern exploration, you're met with mistrust and distrust and kind of fear. And you to make progress, you have to build trust. You have to work with the local community. You have to um, establish your environmental credentials. You have to do everything from the bottom up. And we do that on a, on a day-by-day basis, um, right across everything we do. It's absolutely part of our culture. And this, in a sense uh as Tim said, you know we just have to talk about it now and demonstrate that what we what we do is part of our business you know we we after every drill hole we re, we reclaim our um the sites new country. we rehabilitate you know on every single level we um work with the community and with the environment so it's absolutely part of how to be a sustainable and ongoing exploration presence or development presence in ecuador um so it's certainly not something that we have to pay lip service to, um, or, or there's no um, <clears throat> sense of we're just ticking the boxes here. But what I do find difficult, though, is that in, our, in a presentation or in a, um, when you're trying to talk to a, about a company in a 15-minute slot, you've, you've got the kind of the ESG slide, and every company has it. And it's so hard to say, no, but hang on, it really matters to us because we can't get into that community unless we work with that community. We can't explore over there. We can't develop until we get the 12,000 people that live around this mind development on side. So it, for us, it's, it's absolutely crucial. And um I, I mean, and then I end up saying things like we do it really well and you know, every 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 company will say that, but we really do do it well. And um, when people spend time and when they come down and they actually visit site and they see what we do, then they go, okay, now this this is this is really interesting. Um, but to convey that, as you said, Tim, with kind of an index or a um, you know, I had a look about maybe we should do an ESG audit and um, perhaps get. Um, some external person to review what we do, and I and, and I actually felt that we were better placed to do that. So I pulled up the um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and we kind of go through that. And we talk about them on, a, on an individual basis, but um, it's 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 hard to communicate.
0: It, it it is, and I want to ask this question because all, all three of you have touched upon it in in, in some way. Which is, you know, this has been driven by the very large funds. Uh, they they have set themselves out uh some criteria by which they will in, invest in, in certain companies and they're very conscious that they don't want to upset their own investors but there there are no hard and fast rules to it so you know tim you mentioned the fact that you know you it's not something you've historically talked about and you don't like using the phrase corporate social responsibility csr as 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 sec perhaps used to be broadly uh called but I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work out, and maybe this is off the back of a conversation with a slightly outspoken CEO called Alex Black. He said, "Look, we've always done it. We've always had to do these things. Mining companies were not stupid. We've always had to look locally. We are the guest in someone's country. We need to behave a certain way to get projects over the line." Um, but do you think, Brandon, in any way that the funds stepping up and creating this ESG badge, as it were? Is a useful thing for the markets to be able to comprehend the sorts of things that, that are going on, or is it perhaps overcomplicating matters?
2: Well, in terms of its benefits, like many things in investing, it sits in an area of grey. Uh, on the one hand, I applaud the fact that companies that do have their heart in the right place, who are effective at executing appropriate ESG programs, um, who have good relationships with communities, who have best practice environmental controls, who do all of the right things, it's great that they get recognised for that. And it's an example of what, particularly in the uranium sector, we did from a risk mitigation point of view for many years. However, we never got like a gold star for it. But having said that, it's created an industry of consultants who dress up companies to... Um, appeal to that type of an investor. And so what often happens is the people who are out there in the field sitting under trees with their local communities actually developing relationships are not the same people who are making their presentations look fantastic and getting graphic designers to do beautiful things and consultants to produce uh, sustainability reports and that type of thing. So there is a gap as this whole sector matures And unfortunately, at the moment, that gap has allowed adversaries to come in and start brandishing threats of greenwashing accusations and um, allowed them to really in one sweep discredit a company by accusing them of greenwashing. And in many cases, it works like this. The more effectively you can communicate your good ESG message, the easier it is to be accused of greenwashing. So. In many companies, and I um, adopt this approach for our own company with Bannerman Energy, we're actually careful not to look too polished on this front. We're careful to understate what we're doing. Um, We're far more driven about authenticity and getting communities to speak on our behalf than we are in terms of providing the tools that these institutions need to be able to tick their own boxes. So it's an imperfect setup. It's obviously moving in the right direction, but it is having a number of growing pains that will sort themselves out over time, but nonetheless created um, opportunities for companies who perhaps are more driven by aesthetics than what's really going on On the ground. Eventually, that gets resolved and found out. But in the meantime, it can make it hard, particularly for junior mining companies who don't want to be uh, particularly PR-focused. They would rather just be doing what they do and walking the walk rather than talking the talk.
0: So, Tim, do you, do you think there's any benefit? I just want to, whilst I remember, um, do you think that there's any benefit in trying to make a bit more effort to talk about it, um, publicly to perhaps, um, ensure that that your presentation and your, your, your narrative does include ESG more? Because the money gets cheaper. If you tick more boxes for the funds or for Mm -hmm. funders, does the money get cheaper? I'm trying to work out what the benefit to the, shareholder is and why a company would go go through this process rather than, you know, do the bare minimum.
3: To, to be perfectly honest, I don't think this is going to drive the outcomes it should until funds actually start putting the rubber on the road and making decisions, you know, specifically based on this. Now, I'll give you an example, like the 95% of funds simply use the reporting frameworks and the score a company gets, as I think it was Brandon said, to tick a box. Um, that's the purpose of that. If I sit down with most of those funds to talk about base, as soon as I start talking about ESG matters, their eyes disclose over. And it's like, yeah, 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 but what about you know next quarter? Um, and and same thing with with um uh with with brokers. You know, no one wants to actually spend time dwelling on it talking about what it is you do. And the real problem I have with this at the moment is that the reporting is so focused on inputs and look what we spend and look at all these programs we do. And and because you have the right buzzwords, the, the AI programs that harvest all the information out of your public disclosures and slam it into a into a framework um, get give you a, get you a decent score. but there's no focus on um, the impacts your business has and and there are unquestionably negative ones. What are the outcomes you're seeking and how are you going about achieving them? and as, as Brandon says, you know being able to be authentic about the journey you're on, that you're not achieving these perfect outcomes right now, you know, you, you but but this is where we're trying to get to and being open and honest about that. Now the the market at the moment isn't really rewarding people for taking that step. And it's only when we collectively take that step we're going to see better outcomes, which ultimately has to be the objective of this. I think
0: we're we we're starting to see it. I agree with that. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um but but at, the, but at the, same time, perhaps it's getting <clears throat> a little bit easier for uh, companies to justify spend on, 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 their ESG because we're seeing NGOs, we're, we're seeing, um, local activists starting to stop companies from being able to perform, even get onto site. You know, there's social media has been a, um, quite a, quite a good way for people to kind of, um, rile up the locals and affect a company's business to do their business. So, do you think in some way, um, Merlin, this kind of this kind of jurisdictional risk is expanding? You know, globally at the moment, we've seen it in in tier one jurisdictions as as advertised. In Canada, we've seen it clearly. Um, issues down in South America, sort of near to where you guys are. We've seen we've seen it um, elsewhere. Where in the world? So. Do you, do you think that companies are going to have to pay a little bit more attention? Do you think that retail investors are going to have to be a little bit more cautious because there's no such thing as a Tier 1 country
1: anymore? I, I don't want to say this all the time, but I completely agree with Brandon and Tim. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the point is that exploration companies, mining companies, they are frontier enterprises. They go into remote locations normally. Um, where there are communities that haven't necessarily got a, a culture of mining, or if they do, it, 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 it you know it needs an evolution. So these are companies that go in; they have to live and operate among their community. They have to live with the the environment around them, um, and in order to be successful, to be authentic was the word that Brandon used. You know, to to really. Um, to flourish and to contribute over time because these are multi-generational assets. I mean, um, BASE has been operating in um, East Africa for 15 years and it's got more to go. You know, these are long-life assets. So to be successful, it's not about lip service. It's not about ticking boxes. It's about that real engagement with your community and kind of... managing the impact on the environment and, and offsetting it with benefits that you can kind of allocate around it. So it's, it's, an, um that phrase um, enlightened self-interest, you know, in order for, for your project to run well, you need to do your environmental and your social work. Well, it's just, it's, it's absolutely core to our business. You cannot progress whether you're in Canada or in um um, East Africa, West Africa, or South America—you you know, wherever you are in the world—you've got to do that job well. And the the, the better uh, companies, you'll find the ones that are, um, make progress and uh, grow and mature, are the ones that do this properly and take it seriously. Um, <clears throat> and I think that. It, it's it's good that the Western capital markets do have this kind of this, we now need to look at the, the environmental and the social governance um, aspect of it. But um, so much of it is a tick-box exercise until you actually come down into um, taking a really good look at the company. And it's often a site visit or spending proper time with management to really understand what's going on. Um, and these risks are everywhere. You you make a mistake on the environment. You know, everyone's got a mobile phone now. Now Everyone films everything. Everything is recorded. Um, I have got into trouble with with um, an, an ecological group because they were listening to um, a, uh, a report that I did for Crux Investor speaking about how the government was trying to attract investment into the country, and I was saying that I'd met the president, and that was being used by the... Uh, environmentalists are saying that it was this inappropriate lobbying of lobbying of government. So, so much is recorded. So much is kind of at the high level, but really fundamentally, it's about doing the job properly on the ground. And that's what the the better companies do. And um, just coming back to one of um, Brandon's points, I have seen companies producing really beautiful reports back up to head office um, in their home country but actually, I can see the work that they're doing on the ground has got no, no real merit and, and no real um, traction and kind of integrity with the community.
2: And Matt, um, on your point about, you know, has this created new barriers or new risks for companies? Maybe at the margins because it's created new risks at a corporate level, at a parent company level. There's, uh, there's risks that companies will be isolated from capital. Uh, It'll affect their cost of capital and so on. But what uh, is really important to understand is, particularly when it comes to community engagement in developing countries, whether it be Africa or South America or elsewhere, the very, very fundamental risks are not getting the local social license to operate. And that's independent of what the capital markets define as ESG. And the social license to operate can take many, many different forms, depending on how sophisticated your local host community is. Um, And the consequences, there's many examples of where locals have blocked the only access road to a producing mine and it's cost millions of dollars a day And there's no alternative because the company can't just simply move the locals on. That's the job of the local police or the local um, authorities who don't want to get involved. So everything from a producing mine all the way down to an exploration company who can't get on the ground uh, because there's a dispute about using... Uh, bulldozers instead of the local labour to cut the drilling tracks, for example. There's so many different aspects that can cost a young mining company or an exploration company in terms of time, in terms of opportunity cost. Um, I can think of lots of examples where companies haven't received permitting and they've missed the entire cycle for what they were looking to explore for. Um, That hasn't changed in any way perhaps with this focus on ESG, a few more uh, geologists and a few more people on the ground are getting better tools and they're becoming more aware of this. Um, But at the end of the day, the biggest risks community-wise for a new exploration company, which is getting on the ground and um, having their permitting progress as it needs to, I don't think that that's changed over the last five years, despite all of the focus on ESG.
3: I was just going to say, could I just build on um, sort of what we're talking about here? One of the hopes I have for this ESG is that it provides a mechanism for people to differentiate. So it's not just mining. There's good mining and there's bad mining. At at the moment, we tend to get all tarred with the same brush and you're a mining company and you're you're going to pollute and you're going to take advantage of the locals. the focus on this, if it's real, and I'm talking about the, the more meaningful, you know, on ground, really different work that starts to get recognised by people. The, the hope for me is that NGOs who can play an enormous spoiler role um, in, a, in a local context, um, they start to become a little more focused on instead of just being anti-mining of, in any description becoming more focused on, well, let's be honest, it's one of the industries that, that, that has to exist. You know, there simply isn't an alternative to most of what we dig up, you know, as opposed to casinos and whatever else, you know, there's no ultimate social necessity. Um, that they'd start to focus more on the fact, well, hang on a minute, there's good mining and there's bad mining. How about we focus on how we can work with good mining to drive better outcomes and provide greater differentiation from the bad mining? And suddenly you're having a very different engagement with the NGOs if you're you're, um, you're one of those guys. And and, uh, to me, I think that being able to bring people alongside you um, in support because you're doing it the right way and you're having positive impact is one of the possibly the biggest factors that could come out of this.
1: I mean, you, have, you haven't worked in Ecuador um, <laughs> <laughs> where, where it's, 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 it's far out, you know, the, the anti-mining uh, it's, it's irrational. It's, it's not, you're not talking about anything that's rational. What we absolutely have to work with is the local community. And it's that that becomes our defense and our shield, um, is that we build up trust over the, the weeks, the months, the years, and they become our best advocates. They become our um, the, the campaigners for continued development and growth to the government. And then they've got the government saying, actually, we need um, foreign direct investment because we're a dollar-based economy. So, we, you know, we get it from both sides. And, um, and then the, the anti-mining kind of noise, this kind of chaos uh, uh, is... Just kind of you just push it away by dealing with the people that actually make the rules, set the rules, and the communities that allow it to happen, and us to the, the, do the implementation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's talking about bringing an NGO alongside is is a very very tricky thing to do in um, um, in equitable, but. Um, <clears throat> Um, yeah, and I mean, we, we aspire to it. But the other thing, kind of, Brandon, I wanted to mention is that it's not just the junior companies that have got this social license to operate. It affects, you know, the huge corporations. I mean, look what happened last year with, um, the, you know, Rio Tinto and the Jukan Gorge. Um, it may be two years ago now, but, um, you know, Rio Tinto started this kind of enlightened um, ESG thing. They had the Bougainville problems in the, um in you know, the, the, the 70s and um, um 70s and 80s. And then they really kind of went forward and they they were so progressive and they really did so much good work through the 90s, but kind of lost sight of it perhaps recently. Uh, but that impact it was affected their brand. Uh the CEO lost the job, the head of iron ore lost the job, the head of the um um uh, ES, um, CSR lost their job. Eventually, I think the chairman stepped down as well. I mean, it's it's a, it, it really really matters to get these things right.
0: It, it does, and it sounds like from what you guys are collectively saying, you, you, you can't fake it till you make it. You've got you've got to be honest and authentic and and real about what you're what you're doing and and be clear with the communication. I think there will be some cynics saying, "Well, look, it's just a case of money." You just they're looking for more money from the company. It's as simple as that, you know, whether you're explorer developer or, or eventually producer, it's a case of they want a bigger slice of the pie. So just give them a bigger slice of the pie and it'll be hunky-dory. Is, is it as simple as that, Brandon? No, it's not. And depending
2: on what phase you're at with a mining company on the journey from exploration to production, uh, money can be a highly unconstructive lever To use. Um, I've seen many mining companies or exploration companies throw money at uh, the community and none of it really sticks in any productive or positive way. And in fact, it creates the exact opposite in the form of expectations. Um, It's really vital for a a company that's getting to know its local community, that it manages expectations. It doesn't allow those expectations to get beyond what that company can realistically deliver. And that's one of the most consistent mistakes that I've seen, uh, particularly remote control type mining companies operating in Africa, companies that don't have on the ground management, but prefer to Uh, sort of oversee from a Vancouver or a West Perth or a London, for example. So money obviously is needed to some extent, but it's far more effective, I've found, um, in the Namibian context in particular, the strength of planning, the strength of local community engagement, having a criteria that local management can work to involving the community, um, and uh, having a strategy that's consistent So, for example, just just one of the things that are in our community engagement strategy at Bannerman is um, we prefer to have a limited number of programs where we drive deep rather than kind of sprinkling money over, you know, all of the different things that inevitably come your way uh, where a community senses that you've got a bit of a budget and, you know, every soccer team needs a uniform and uh, every preschool and orphanage needs this. Like there is absolutely no shortage of need, but as a mining company, sometimes you need to be disciplined about what you back. And through employing that particular aspect of our strategy over 15 years, the result is we've got some programs that we have driven really deep where we've really um, created capacity, in some cases shared them with other mining companies so that they can roll out our learnings and our successes in other regions. So money um, can become counterproductive. Um, and I suppose, depending on how you build those and manage those expectations with the local community, also uh, is how you start to set the long-term scene. And if you create the wrong expectations and the wrong behaviour at the beginning of a program, uh, you probably could conclude that you're more likely to have that type of Behavior that uh, that you outlined a moment ago, in terms of the end outcome, once say uh, companies in production and generating revenue and generating profits.
0: Tim, I've got, I want to come back to what you said about um, fund managers in terms of, you know, when you're doing your quarterly reviews with institutional uh, shareholders, or you're going into funds and talking about your business. When it gets to the kind of ESG bit, the kind of the green bit, they roll their eyes and go, "Just like let's get back to the numbers real quick." And 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 I can. I understand that from my banking days, I I thought perhaps was, was was that way too, because the numbers matter for investors, the the numbers matter. Are you hitting your targets? Are you delivering your, your cash? How, How do, how do we as investors now need to view Companies, um, to maybe be a little bit more enlightened as to some of the risk mitigation that you have to put in place. Where, um, specifically with regards to ESG. I mean, cause it's just, it's very, very confusing because you, you all kind of say the same stuff. Cause as Merlin said earlier, it's one page on the PowerPoint and you kind of, you know, feel inclined to skip through that because you've got more important things to talk about. So how, how
3: do we, how do we make judgment calls as to who's doing it properly and who's not? I think you've got to ask questions. You know, the, <clears throat> I mean coming back to my original comment about fund managers, there are some fund managers. You know, if, if I'm having a, a session with, with Fidelity, for example, you know, we'll we'll spend out of an hour, we'll spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about ESG issues. Um and, and I don't really understand why the question isn't asked more, because if you go back to some of the comments from Mel and and Brandon, um, about the risks that not being good at this actually embeds in your business. Um, you got to understand this to understand the risk profile of the investment you're taking. You know, it's all fine and well to be punching out lots of money, and you've got an MPV on a project you're about to build that looks amazing, but the community's about to stop you mid-construction, which is the has the potential to be fatal for the for the business. Um, for, for me, if I was to be a fund manager, um, you know, I, I would be asking questions of management. Okay, so talk to me about the way you see your impacts on the community, on the environment, what are they? I wanna hear you articulate what those risks are, what those impacts are, and, and then talk to me about your programs that and, and the approaches and the philosophies you have in place to manage those issues and drive towards outcomes. And, and just have a dialogue that elicits um, communication of a thought process. Because for me, it, you know, it, it is absolutely a central risk. If you look at the things that are going to make the biggest mess of your business, um, it's not commodity cycles necessarily. It's community. It's reputational damage. It's having a massive environmental issue that um, suddenly sees your licence pulled, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, it's just trying to have a conversation and ask questions about how people think about this stuff.
2: And unlike a commodity cycle, they're mitigatable and manageable risks. Like that is the job of management to do that. Um, and I, you know, I love what you said just then, Tim. And I think um, there's a certain amount of that that retail investors can engage in as well. It might be slightly more simplified, but sometimes just simple questions like. Do you have a written community plan? Can you articulate it? Can your people on the ground articulate it? Um, those questions that Tim mentioned about what's your philosophy, so many companies just don't have that. Um, they do, they're reactive when it comes to community engagement. They're reactive when it comes to communications with their community. And as a retail investor, if you can get a sense that they're not that the company you're investing is in is not reactive, it's actively engaged in thinking. They've got a strategy. They've got goals and uh, intentions that they are working towards. They're thinking about the next step of their mining company. If we develop, if we make a discovery, if we get uh, to the point of feasibility, if we're applying for a environmental clearance or a mining license or whatever, even uh, less experienced retail investors can quickly get a sense for is this a company that's properly engaged with this or are they focused on other things and just making sure that they give the requisite amount of lip service if they don't get
3: themselves in trouble could, could I just make one 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 quick comment on that because I, I think there's a a message to um, to investors uh, from me is that to me safety and the thinking around, community engagement and how you're doing that uh, for uh, over time are really fantastic windows in on the um, performance culture of the business and the degree of sophistication with which they think about their business. You know, it's not just about digging stuff up, processing it, shipping it to market and trying to avoid any issues along the way. Um, or, or push those issues down. It's a really good indicator of sophistication of business for me. So if I'm looking to invest my own money in something, I look at safety, and I have a very close look at the way they go about engaging with the outside world.
0: It's great. It reminds me of a quote from a CEO that I interviewed a few months ago, and, he's, and he was referring to some First Nations discussions, and he used the phrase, um, what they need to understand is... I thought that was a that was, uh, sort of terminal uh, and it didn't turn out to be as um, their flagship project was basically shut down by the locals. Um, let me just go to Merlin, um, Merlin, do you, and, and, and I say, I'm asking this question in the context of, again, retail investors, what do we look for, what are the signals we look for, um, and perhaps not. Um, so, so I'd love your view on some of the questions you would be asking in the context of, are there tier 1 jurisdictions anymore? We've we've seen problems all around the world from you know conventionally and historically good mining jurisdictions, but perhaps it's a little bit harder to mine these days. It seems.
1: Okay, so this is, you know, uh, where can you move the most quickly, and you know, and where where is your Money safe, and you know, oh, it's so hard to define what a tier one mining jurisdiction is for a retail investor because, uh, yes, you've got the established mining jurisdictions of um, Australia, Canada, North America, um, where th- there are these huge industries where you can get stuff done. But there are problems associated with that from the point of a retail investor, which is that it's very hard to find good new stuff. If you can find good new stuff in Canada, it's probably in the back end of beyond, um, It's possibly similarly in Australia. And also permitting in these countries can just take forever because they've got to the stage where they're almost paralyzed by the, the complex degree of permitting that other jurisdictions such as countries within Africa or South America or um, possibly even Europe um, give you greater geological potential and greater ease of permitting and you can find a bigger prize in a different jurisdiction. So um, I think you always have to look at the asset, you have to look at the permitting timelines, you have to look at I mean, there are no shortcuts as a retail investor. You can't just look for some kind of silver bullet or just some magic potion which is going to give you the answer. Everything has got its own um warts and it's got its own beauty spots. You know, you you you've got to look at everything. Um so for example, some projects in West Africa can get permitted very quickly, but Ooh, you've got a security risk associated with it. Um, other countries, you've got great huge deposit, but um, well, for example, look at Ecuador. You know, the reason why you would go to Ecuador is because you'd be interested in finding big gold or copper projects. Um, to operate in Ecuador, you've got to be able to manage the above ground risks. And to manage the above ground risks, you've got to be able to work with the community. And so that's really kind of the Salazar selling point is that we can manage the above ground risks and we've got this track record of working in communities and we can work in the province where no one else has been able to maintain the presence because they've been shut down because they haven't managed their local community well but we have so I'm sorry to say there's no um there's no magic bullet I, I think Australia and Canada are still tier one jurisdictions. If you can find a big deposit sitting at surface in Australia and Canada, you will get a premium over something which is sitting in another country. There's no doubt about it. But um, every every country has its challenges. And some of the more challenging countries, such as, I don't know, Niger or, or Ecuador, where the you know the, the kind of the typical risk profile is high. Actually, the governments are desperate for the, for the investment, and if you can, if you can, I mean, I mean, Global Atomic got their license really, really quickly because the government desperately wants to replace a mine that's closing down. Um, in Ecuador, we're seeing the government saying, "Please invest. We need the foreign direct investment." So, um, it it really depends on on where you are. You know, in the terms of those permitting timelines and and. Uh, you know, we've jumped into a whole range of different topics here moving away from ESG, but um, yeah, no, it, it, there's, there's no perfect solution, I'm afraid.
0: Merlin, all investing advice, welcome. Uh, we have strayed a little bit, but I, I think that broadly we, we've touched upon a lot of the um, but a lot of the thinking that CEOs have to go through and, and their board have to go through, um, when contemplating ESG and what it, what it really means. So that, uh, gentlemen, I appreciate your time today. I've learned a few things and, and, uh, which I appreciate. And hopefully people listening and watching this will have too. So thank you for your time.
3: Thanks, Thanks Tim. very much.
0: I mean, Tim, just before we go, um, you've, you've, um, instigated, um, quite the program, uh, yourself. So maybe, I think it's worth maybe sharing that because, uh, it, it's, it's kind of interesting how you've gone about, um, your ESG uh, program.
3: Uh, oh well, I'll, I'll talk more about the community side of it. Um, I guess coming back to some comments that were made earlier about needing to understand what's important to the community and, and not just throwing money at the problem. Yeah, you know, we we've focused on how do we enhance um, livelihoods for the community. Not it's not about handing money out. It, and and this is what the community wants. They want an opportunity to have you know. The whole community's boat floated um, uh, over time. So that's been the focus. And then you start thinking about, okay, what are the enablers that are going to, going to drive that? And bearing in mind that we had a mine of a relatively short mine life, so 11, 12 years, we didn't have the 100-year mine life at Kwale that enables you to think differently about it. So we had to make sure we didn't just leave a vacuum after we left. So needed to do it over a pretty short period of time. So the focuses that a lot of companies make are around infrastructure, like running around building schools and, and what have you, which has a place. But the way, I guess the cascade for us was firstly focusing on livelihoods. How do we leverage that best? So firstly, is providing employment and making sure that you are focusing your employment on the local community as much as possible. So you know, at Kuala, we've managed to achieve 99%. Um, Kenyan uh, employees and 71% local in an environment where no one's ever been mining before. Um, Then we're focused on um, agricultural programs. How can we develop agricultural programs of scale? So we've ended up with about 3,500 farmers now involved in our cooperative, um, our agricultural cooperative that's producing cotton, um, you know, all manner of, materials, you know, um, uh, poultry, we've got beekeeping, we've got all manner of things that people can latch onto. So there's about 3,500 of those. And then you look at how do you make people more able to participate in that and or indeed leave Kuala if that's their thing. So we developed a scholarship program where we've now funded 3,500 high-potential kids who would otherwise not have access to schooling beyond probably the equivalent of grade six. Um, all the way through, and um, you know that's that's been massively successful. And then we look at infrastructure as really just what supporting role does that need to play to make the rest of that work better. Um, and that's that's driven some pretty out outstanding outcomes, but in a way that hasn't warped the local economy, because that's one of the challenges with throwing more money at it. All you end up doing is is making enemies of other employers and other companies who are in the area because, you know, you do drive this um, massive local inflation that makes it very difficult for others. So, yeah, it's been a a very successful program, the whole package, and it's uh, the approach we're looking to take to Madagascar.